Section 12 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 1, Chapter 12. The days flew by for Saxon. She worked on steadily at the laundry, even doing more overtime than usual, and all her free waking hours were devoted to preparations for the great change and to Billy. He had proved himself God's own impetuous lover by insisting on getting married the next day after the proposal, and then by resolutely refusing to compromise on more than a week's delay. Why wait, he demanded. We're not getting any younger so far as I notice, and I think of all we lose every day we wait. In the end he gave in to a month, which was well, for in two weeks he was transferred, with a half a dozen other drivers, to work from the big stables of Coberly and Morrison in West Oakland. House hunting in the other end of town ceased, and on Pine Street between 5th and 4th, in immediate proximity to the great Southern Pacific Railroad yards, Billy and Saxon rented a cottage of four small rooms for $10 a month. Dog cheap is what I call it. When I think of the small rooms I've been soaked for, was Billy's judgment, Look at the one I got now. Not as big as the smallest here, and me paying six dollars a month for it. But it's furnished, Saxon reminded him. You see, that makes a difference. But Billy didn't see. I ain't much of a scholar, Saxon, but I know simple arithmetic. I've soaked my watch when I was hard up, and I can calculate interest. How much do you figure it will cost to furnish the house, carpets on the floor, linoleum on the kitchen and all. We can do it nicely for three hundred dollars, she answered. I've been thinking it over, and I'm sure we can do it for that. Three hundred, he muttered, wrinkling his brow with concentration. Three hundred, say, at six percent, that'd be six cents on the dollar, sixty cents on ten dollars, six dollars on a hundred, on three hundred, eighteen dollars. Say I'm a bear at multiplying by ten. Now divide eighteen by twelve. That'd be a dollar and a half a month interest. He stopped, satisfied that he had proved his contention. Then his face quickened with a fresh thought. Hold on, that ain't all. There'd be interest on the furniture for four rooms, divided by four. What's a dollar and a half divided by four? Four in the fifteen, three times and three to carry, Saxon recited Ghibli. Four in the thirty is seven, twenty-eight, two to carry, and two-fourths is one-half. There you are. Gee, you're the real bear at figures, he hesitated. I didn't follow you. How much did you say it was? Thirty-seven and a half cents. Aha, now we see how much I've been gouged for my one room. Ten dollars a month for four rooms is two and a half for one. Add thirty-seven and a half cents interest on furniture, and that makes two dollars and eighty-seven and a half cents. Subtracted from six dollars, three dollars and twelve and a half cents, she supplied quickly. There we are, three dollars and twelve and a half cents. I'm jiggered out of on the room I'm renting. Say, being married is like saving money, ain't it? But furniture wears out, Billy. By golly, I never thought of that. It ought to be figured, too. Anyway, 
We've got a snap here, and next Saturday afternoon you got to get off from the laundry so we can go and buy our furniture. I saw Salinger's last night. I give him fifty down and the rest installment plan, ten dollars a month. In twenty-five months the furniture's ours. And remember, Saxon, you want to buy everything you want, no matter how much it costs. No scrimping on what's for you and me, get me? She nodded with no betrayal on her face of the myriad secret economies that filled her mind. A hint of moisture glistened in her eyes. You're so good to me, Billy, she murmured, as she came to him and was met inside his arms. So you've gone and done it, Mary commented one morning in the laundry. They had not been at work ten minutes ere her eye had glimpsed the topaz ring on the third finger of Saxon's left hand. Who's the lucky one? Charlie Long or Billy Roberts? Billy was the answer. Huh? Taking a young boy to raise, huh? Saxon showed that the stab had gone home, and Mary was all contrition. Can't you take a josh? I'm glad to death at the news. Billy's an awfully good man, and I'm glad to see you get him. There ain't many like him knocking around, and they ain't to be had for the asking. And you're both lucky. You was just made for each other, and you'll make him a better wife than any girl I know. When is it to be? Going home from the laundry a few days later, Saxon encountered Charlie Long. He blocked the sidewalk and compelled speech with her. So you're running with a prizefighter, he sneered. A blind man can see your finish. For the first time she was unafraid of this big-bodied, black-browed man with the hairy matted hands and fingers. She held up her left hand. See that? It's something, with all your strength, that you could never put on my finger. Billy Roberts put it on inside a week. He's got your number, Charlie Long, and at the same time he's got me. Skidoo for you, Long retorted. Twenty-three's your number. He's not like you, Saxon went on. He's a man. Every bit of him. A fine, clean man. Long laughed hoarsely. He's got your goat, all right. And yours, she flashed back. I could tell you things about him, Saxon. Straight. He ain't no good. If I was to tell you... You'd better get out of my way, she interrupted, or I'll tell him, and you know what you'll get, you great big bully. Long shuffled uneasily, then reluctantly stepped aside. You're a caution, he said, half admiringly. So's Billy Roberts, she laughed, and continued on her way. After half a dozen steps she stopped. Say, she called. The big blacksmith turned toward her with eagerness. About a block back, she said, I saw a man with hip disease. You might go and beat him up. One extravagance Saxon was guilty of in the course of the brief engagement period. A full day's wages she spent in the purchase of a half a dozen cabinet photographs of herself. Billy had insisted that life was unendurable. Could he not look upon her semblance the last thing when he went to bed at night and the first thing when he got up in the morning. In return, his photographs, one conventional and one in the striped fighting costume of the ring, ornamented her looking-glass. It was while gazing at the latter that she was reminded of her wonderful mother's tales, of the ancient Saxons and sea-foragers of the English coasts, 
From the chest of drawers that had crossed the plains, she drew forth another of her several precious heirlooms, a scrapbook of her mother's in which was pasted much of the fugitive newspaper verse of pioneer California days. Also, there were copies of paintings and old wood engravings from the magazines of a generation and more before. Saxon ran the pages with familiar fingers and stopped at the picture she was seeking. Between bold headlands of rock and under a gray cloud-blown sky, a dozen boats, long and lean and dark, beaked like monstrous birds, were landing on a foam-whitened beach of sand. The men in the boats, half-naked, huge-muscled, and fair-haired, wore winged helmets. In their hands were swords and spears, and they were leaping, waist-deep, into the sea-wash and wading ashore. Opposed to them, contesting the landing, were skin-clad savages, unlike Indians, however, who clustered on the beach or waded into the water to their knees. The first blows were being struck, and here and there the bodies of the dead and wounded rolled in the surf. One fair-haired invader lay across the gunwale of a boat, the manner of his death told by the arrow that transfixed his breast. In the air, leaping past him into water, sword in hand, was Billy. There was no mistaking it. The striking blondness, the face, the eyes, the mouth, were the same. The very expression on the face was what had been on Billy's the day of the picnic, when he faced the three wild Irishmen. Somewhere out of the ruck of those warring races had emerged Billy's ancestors and hers, was her afterthought as she closed the book and put it back in the drawer. And some of those ancestors had made this ancient and battered chest of drawers, which had crossed the salt ocean and the plains, and been pierced by a bullet in the fight with the Indians at Little Meadow. Almost, it seemed, she could visualize the women who kept their pretties and their family homespun in its drawers. The women of those wandering generations who were grandmothers and greater-grandmothers of her own mother. Well, she sighed, it was a good stock to be born of, a hard-working, hard-fighting stock. She fell to wondering what her life would have been like had she been born a Chinese woman or an Italian woman, like those she saw, head-shawed or bareheaded, squat, ungainly, and swarthy, who carried great loads of driftwood on their heads up from the beach. Then she laughed at her foolishness, remembered Billy and the four-roomed cottage on Pine Street, and went to bed with her mind filled for the hundredth time with the details of the furniture. End of section 12